0: Welcome to Chapter 35 of the Kinsman Die Podcast, home of fantasy fiction based on Norse mythology that's written and read by me, Matt Bishop. In this podcast, I read my first novel, Kinsman Die, one chapter at a time. And with each episode, when it makes sense, I provide some commentary about the source materials I've referenced in the text. Today we're back with Vidar Odinson. We last left him about to attack some Jotun who'd occupied the mining camp in the mountains above Hulls. In one of the earliest chapters, one of the miners had recounted the attack on his workers on the road up to that camp. After that attack, the jotun had rolled on down the mountain and sacked halls, but not before the town had sent a messenger for help, which is what brought Vidar and his warband to halls in the first place, followed by Odin, Baldr, and some Aenharar. Let's do this. Chapter 35, Vidar With false dawn upon them... Vidar looked back along a line of Einherar kneeling in the snow behind the miners' longhouses. The last man in the column raised a hand and made a sharp downward-chopping gesture, which meant the scout from the opposite side had just slipped back across and told them that the rest of the warband was in place. Vidar raised his axe, swung it downward, and then he was sprinting alongside the warriors toward the barricade. Two dozen pounding heartbeats later, they were all in the open space that stretched before the sharpened pine stakes of the barricade. Surprised shouts went up from the Jotun. A few heartbeats later, a flight of black-feathered arrows thumped into the snow ahead of them. As he ran, panting as his feet sank ankle-deep into the snow, he again considered the wisdom of not unbinding his fulgia. She slept still, compelled by Odin's magic. Without her power protecting him, these arrows could kill him. But if he lost control again, he was a danger to everyone, and his father wasn't around to save him a second time. His father had given him another spindle charged with witch thread, so once they were a little closer, he'd sing the protection charm that would render these arrows as deadly as the pine needles scattered atop the snow before him. Besides, Skeggy and the other scouts had counted only 30 Jotun. The combined strength of his warband and the Einhar was more than double that. Add the charm to the mix, and victory was assured. A pair of arrows cracked into his shield, one after another, staggering him. Despite his laboring breath, he bellowed out. Those warriors around him, all with shields, along with those carrying spears behind them, echoed his battle cry. He risked a peek over the rim of his round, scarred shield. Six archers, arms moving smoothly, plucking arrows, knocking, drawing, sighting, and then releasing. Five hard thwacks resounded from the leather-covered shields his warriors held. The morning was noticeably brighter now, and more details about the Jotun came into focus. Short, recurved bows, dark leather caps on wide heads above broad, bearded faces. The Jotun fought in much the same way as the Aesir, which made sense since they had been at each other's throats for hundreds of winters. Shields and spears comprised the main battle line with hand weapons, axes, swords, hammers, clubs, for close quarters. Archers were fewer, but could turn the tide of battle but not this battle. He and Iain Harar were nearly upon the Jotun barricade, maybe three spear lengths away. No need for the protective charm, not yet, anyway, which was good. Which thread unspent meant more for when he truly needed it. The snow wasn't as deep here, so he could run faster, another dozen paces now, so close he could taste the pine sap from the stakes. The ground collapsed beneath his weight. He hit the far wall of the pit and bounced off, Blood bloomed in his mouth as he fell sideways to the bottom, his armor caught on something that gashed his side. The wind exploded from his mouth when he hit, and his vision dimmed. Some of those nearby weren't so lucky, as several agonized screams attested. A body landed on top of him, pinning him, hot blood spattered across his face. The pit was dark, the smell of frozen earth mixed with the hot tang of fresh blood and pine sap. He shoved the warrior off him, his side screaming in protest. He needed to get his shield up between him and the sky before black feathered arrows showered down. More screams from around him. The arrows all missed him, except for one that cut a deep line of pain across his thigh. To his left, Inain Harrar twitched on a wooden stake. With each convulsion, he slid a little further down the gore-stained wood. More arrows fell. Thuds and screams marked where they missed or struck flesh. He was just as lucky this time. The one arrow that did strike him, though, drove the metal banding of his helm into his brow, drawing blood and painting stars before his eyes. He blinked, wiped the blood away with one filthy glove and hauled on his shield, bringing it above his head as he tried to stand on the now-slick earth, ready for more arrows. But the expected arrows didn't fall, which meant that maybe Garon's attack had just hit, or fallen into its own pit. Keeping the shield above his head, Bidar counted a handful of long, rough-cut pine spikes on which were pinned the four unluckiest Einherar. How long had the Jotun been here that they could have dug such a deep pit in frozen ground? Above, screams and battle cries and shouts mingled like rolling drums. He had to get out. He had to see what was happening. He dropped his shield and tried to climb out. A moment later, he was sliding back down, having found no purchase. He'd have to sing the charm from down here. He glanced right and left. At least ten warriors had survived the fall. He shouted at them, beckoning them closer. Harafin arrived first, hunkered beneath his own shield. I'm going to get us out of this, Harafin, but I need you to help me. The man looked blankly at him. Harafin, help me and we live. Harafin shook his head and his eyes refocused. Yes, Jarl. Good. Now when the others get here, I'll stand up on my shield. You must lift me up. You hear me? Yes, Jarl. He gripped Haruffin's shoulder. Good man. He produced the spindle and yanked free an arm's length of witch thread. He brought the tip to his mouth and sang, casting the witch thread first into himself and then outward into Haruffin and the warriors grouping around him. And none too soon either, for the black rain of arrows fell again. Two struck him, one in his upturned face and one on his shoulder. Both staggered him, but from surprise, not pain or injury. He regained his balance and kept singing. Jarl, we're ready! Ruffin shouted. Vidar nodded and stepped onto the shield the warriors held awkwardly in front of him. Another sheet of arrows fell and bounced off them, and then, wobbling, he was lifted up. Once his head was above the pit's lip, he again cast out his witch thread. It flew, faster than thought, to where Garalon stood behind a tight shield wall that slowly advanced toward the defending Jotun. The Aesir spearmen were probing the ground ahead of the shields. Garalon must have seen Vidar's warriors fall. Vidar flung more witch thread at Garilon's group of warriors, but he couldn't see the Einharar column, so he couldn't protect them. Harafen shouted up at him, "'Yarl, we can't hold you much longer!' A pair of Jotun archers drew on him, deliberately, and let their arrows fly. He braced himself. The arrows struck like hammers, but they fell to the ground. Vidar looped the witch thread around itself and then tied it off. He drew his knife and slammed it into the ground using that bit of leverage to pull himself onto the ground outside the pit." As he got to his knees, another black arrow broke against his shoulder. The men in the pit and the warriors with Garalon would be protected for a time, but he had to break the Jotun line. So he sprinted at them, hoping there wasn't another pit. The Jotun spearmen behind the barricade saw him coming and leveled their spears. The archers turned from releasing volleys at Garalon's warriors to loosing another flight of arrows at him. They were too slow. He barreled forward, slamming his shoulder into the barricade. His charmed skin deflected the outward-facing wooden spikes. The force of his charge knocked down one of the stakes. He stumbled, and then he was through. Yod-Naxus slammed into him so hard he was driven this way and that, but though the sharp metal cut his armor, it only slid against his skin. He punched the nearest spearman. The man flew backward in a spray of blood and crackling bone. He caught the thrusting spear of another beneath his armpit, pivoted, and ripped the spear out of the yot hands. Vidar flung the spear at the nearest archer, killing him. What felt like three spears jabbed him in the small of his back, driving him stumbling forward. But now he was within grappling reach of several more spearmen in the Jotun line. He clubbed the first one with his fists, but the others farther away scrambled backward. Vidar spun, only to be struck again by those same three spears, two in the chest, one in the neck. He grabbed the one spear that was withdrawn too slowly. He yanked it toward him, bringing the spearmen with him. He elbowed that Jotun in the face, knocking him down. And then Vidar jerked the spear from him, spun in a tight arc, and jabbed one of the attackers through the neck. He stomped on the fallen Jotun till he felt his bones break. The remaining spearmen ran. Vidar stood there, chest heaving, breath white in the cold morning air, long shadows of the trees draped over the camp. It was over. Five bodies at his feet. Only five? It had felt like more. Garillon and the warriors in his section of the warband charged toward the mountain's rocky face and the wide black mouth of the mine entrance. A handful of Jotun fled before them. The remaining Einharar, having pressed through the barricade, covered Garolan's left flank. The mine swallowed the Jotun. Garolan called a halt. Best to not charge a prepared position without more scouting. Theodore glanced back at the pit that he and the others had fallen into. With the blood still pounding through his head, he couldn't hear the cries of the wounded, the warriors he'd so foolishly led. But he couldn't have known the pit was there, nor could he have scouted the open area without betraying his warband's presence. Maybe he'd just made the best decision he could have, with the information he had. But because of that, his warriors had died. And now, some Yoden had escaped. Maybe they'd simply fled, or maybe they'd run to warn another warband. Either way, now they'd have to be even more cautious when they walked into the mine's black gullet. Ultimately, it's my failing that caused their deaths, so let's hear no more talk of it, Vidar said, meeting Garolan's eyes and then those of the Einharar Kyoller. All those who fell here will be remembered on the stones I cut and paint in Vithi. He, Garlon and the Ainharar Kyoller Yorinder sat before a fire set outside the longhouse closest to the mouth of the disused mines. The bifrost stretched overhead, a broad, white-and-blue sparkling road between the southern and northern skies. Herr Sir Sagler needs to be informed of what happened here,' said kjoller Jorinder. "'I'm sure the Allfather will do so after he's read my message,' Vidar said. "'The birds should be in Gladsheim within two nights, by which time we'll be in there,' he jerked his thumb over his shoulder at the mouth of the mine. Garlon had set guards and built makeshift barriers.' He'd also had torches placed along the entrance's walls, so that light flickered fitfully all the way down to the first large cavern. You mean to go in tomorrow, Jarl? Garlon asked. He leaned forward, picked up a long branch, and stabbed the fire. A tongue of fire licked out, curled around the hanging pot, and sank back down again. I do. You said the scouts didn't find traces of the yoten elsewhere, so either they were very good at hiding their tracks, or they have been here for a long time which doesn't quite make sense since Halls was attacked less than a week ago. Or maybe they found another way into the mines, Garlon said. Exactly. Your are broken. There may also be another warband that's now marching toward us, or there could be one headed from across the plains, or both. Neither the Allfather nor my scouts found any trace of additional warbands near Halls, Vithi, or here, Garlon said. What if your scouts or the Sigfather miss something, Yorunder said. Young Einharar had seen maybe thirty winters, which meant that the first time he'd probably ever seen the Sigfather was when he'd ridden with him to Vithi. If that fast ride hadn't been enough to convince him that the Sigfather could do things others could not, well, nothing Vidar said now would penetrate the young man's skull. Great feats in one area didn't make Odin infallible, of course, just worthy of a bit more respect. Garillon simply continued. We also haven't found any supply caches yet, not even on the warband we destroyed. One of our warbands operating this far from a camp would have had to carry everything they needed, particularly food and drink. During the last war, our supply lines stretched for miles. The would... ''Maybe they've just stashed all that inside the mine,'' Yorunder said. ''My point is that they had to get all of it here, and might even have foraged and hunted to supplement what they brought.'' And yet no one in halls had any idea the Odin were less than a night's ride distant. Maybe some in halls did know, Yarender said. That had occurred to me, Vidar interjected, especially since that person or persons was probably among the survivors and is now warm and well-fed in my hall. However, the Allfather traveled back to Gladsheim through Vithi. He and the Harar with him would have prevented another attack. He leaned forward, scooped some stew out of the steaming pot, and poured it into a bowl. He handed it to Yorinder, then filled two more bowls for Gerlon and himself. This wrangling was getting them nowhere. You and your Harar will remain here, killer Yorinder, along with those wounded among my own warband. The man's expression flickered quickly through a range of emotions that Vidar couldn't quite track, but if anything, he sensed more relief from Jorinder than anything, which was odd for an Harar. Yorandr settled on a simple, Yes, Jarl. Vidar turned to Garlon. You've already picked out those of ours who will remain behind? Yes, Jarl. A reserve force might prove unnecessary, but it was better to be cautious when headed into the unknown. And if they had to move fast, the wounded would slow them down. He continued. Let's focus on the immediate problem. We know there's a handful of Jotun inside the mine, maybe more. So what do we know about the mine itself? "'Just that this branch has been disused for ten or so winters,' Garolan said. "'The Gothi said they abandoned it for the richer, higher-quality finds beneath the western slopes. "'Do any in our warband have experience working in a mine?' "'I don't know, Jarl, but I'll find out. "'If we do, they should lead the way. "'Not too far ahead, but far enough they can make sure the rest of us don't fall into an open mine shaft or something. "'I know it's not that type of mine, but it couldn't hurt. "'And the Jotun may have placed traps.' We'll also need trackers up in front to spot any trail the Jotun may have left. Makes sense, Jarl. And how long will our supplies last? Enough for a fortnight? Yes, Jarl. More, actually, if we ration, which I wouldn't recommend. Not yet, anyway. Even if we're in there for a week, this camp should be reinforced and resupplied by then. Good. Bedar scraped the bottom of his bowl and stood. Let's get some rest, then. Well, folks, that was chapter 35 of Kinsman Die. I hope you enjoyed it. We were with Vidar as he attacked the Jotun occupying the mining camp in the mountains above Halls. There's not a lot going on myth-wise in this chapter, so let's just get to the rest of the segment. Next week, we're back with Odin. Before then, if you have the time and inclination, please take a few moments to rate or review the podcast. That provides valuable feedback for me and helps boost the show's visibility as to sharing it. And if you're so inclined, shoot me an email at mattbishopwrites at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you. And as always, I'm going to read from the Havamal, The Sayings of the High One. Bellows, verse 35. Fourth shall one go, nor stay as a guest in a single spot forever. Love becomes loathing if long one sits by the hearth in another's home. Larrington, verse 35. A man must go. He must not remain a guest always in one place. The loved man is loathed if he sits too long in someone else's hall. This week's reading is a good example of why I usually prefer Bellows to Larrington. I like the poetic turn of phrase in Bellows and, as one example, the alliteration, that third line, for example, love, loathing, long, and the use of hearth and home in the last line. But both are good, and your mileage may vary. Thanks for listening.